Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Double Disillusionists podcast. My name is Dom Knight. Andrew P Street, we're halfway through the campaign. Hello. Hello. And yeah, almost. Sort of. It feels like we've always been here. Yes, the end is, I, w- I wouldn't say in sight, but we know that it's going to happen at some point. We're something like a month away from election day. Uh, the polls are still reasonably tight. We thought we'd do a midway through the campaign catch-up overview analysis of how it's all going. And who better to join us for this than election campaign guru, woman who actually wrote the book on winning elections, uh, Dee Madigan. Uh, the hard sell is a Bible of how to win elections. It seems like nobody's been reading it. Hello, Dee. I know, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so look, it's, if you're working on the campaign, please go and buy her book right now. I interviewed her about it um, on radio a couple of years ago. And it was extremely instructive, uh, Dee. So are you as frustrated as the rest of us? Um, yeah, I guess what I'm, I'm most surprised about is the really basic campaign mistakes that seem to be made, like stuff that's really 101. For example, the other day when um, Scott Morrison and... Um, and Matt, Matthias Coleman did their announcement where they had the board up and they had the $65 billion and then they had the $35 billion. Now, to the general public, they could have just had the $35 billion. And then the whole conversation after that would have been talking about labour debt. And that's, that's a, you know, even though I, you know, I don't think it's actually true, it's, 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 it's in liberal territory and it's stuff that they're generally considered strong on. But by having the two different figures up there, the whole conversation then for the next couple of days is about you know, were they playing dodgy with the numbers, which numbers right and whatever, and they completely kind of lost the narrative and that seems to happen over and over again. And, and they're, again, they're just really basic mistakes. Well, maybe that's why Morrison decided to go for a much simpler message today and just keep saying, war, war, class war, war, it's war, it's war, war, over and over again as, far, as best I could work out. Well, we know that... Uh... National security plays well for the coalition as a rule, so maybe that strategy is there. I'm curious to know, Dee, as someone who's worked on um, previous Labor campaigns, who actually runs the show? Because we hear about uh, Crosby Textor and uh, the, the Labor equivalent, the likes of Bruce Hawker and so on, um, <laughs> and we, we've heard about you know command and control during the Peter Credlin era. Is anyone running this uh, this show on the coalition side at this point? Um. Yeah, look, as always, I mean, Crosby Texas doesn't run the, the show. There are the advisors. I don't think Bruce Walker is involved in this election at all. Um, you have on each side, you have the campaign director. And for the Labor Party, it's the national secretary, who's George Wright. And on the Liberal Party side this time, I believe it's Tony Nutt. Yep. I think he's a very experienced campaigner. Um, so you, you, each of them have your headquarters, if you like. And then they have obviously a whole lot of people under them. But then you also have the, the, the travelling party which is, you know, the politician and the people around him. And what you're hoping for in a campaign is that they're vaguely running the same kind of campaign. What sometimes happens, as it did in the last campaign with Kevin Rudd, is you end up almost with two campaigns happening at the same time, which is usually quite disastrous. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that seems to have worked. <laughs> yes, that, perhaps not quite a template for, for, for anyone. But let's start by analysing where the coalition is with this. They were miles ahead at the start of this campaign in Malcolm Turnbull they had a very popular candidate uh, in Bill you know up against Bill Shorten who really uh, only seemed to, to do well by default against Tony Abbott it should have been theirs in a canter it probably would have been if they'd gone last year and I, I'm keen to know D what should the pitch have been for the coalition if they'd done this in a textbook way what's their strongest suit 
what they should have done is go last year. And it's exactly, Kevin Rudd did exactly the same mistake where he was told to go in the January and just kept putting it off. There's, there's something about Malcolm Turnbull that was in Kevin Rudd as well, this, I don't know, hubris, that somehow they're kind of greater than other people and, and that people will love them if only they can have more time with hmm. them, um, which is quite the opposite. But with both of them, I think it's, you know, the more you know them, the less you like them and they both should have gone earlier. And it, what I think is happening again with Malcolm Turnbull, why there are so many mistakes there are people around him who know what he's who know what they're doing. You know, there's, he absolutely has experienced people, but there are mistakes being made which suggests his arrogance. And the same with Kevin Rudd is that he knows best and he doesn't. Well, he's never run one of these things before. So in that case, you listen to the people who have, and I suspect Turnbull hasn't been. I was going to ask whether part of the reason why things got delayed was because they were so determined to clear out the Senate, and so they they wanted to change the ballot laws before they. They call it a double disillusion. Yeah, look, I'd say that is true, except they sold it very, very badly. Uh, and I think what's happened now is not only have they not made a case for a Liberal majority in the Senate, you know, I want some of the independents in there. I want Ricky Muir. I want some people like that to balance <laughs> it out a little bit. They've often they've actually made the opposite case by sort of completely stuffing up their messaging. I think we all want Ricky Muir. I, I think there should be a seat basically reserved for anyone who can do a donut outside the parliamentary car park. Six circle work. Just having genuine people in the Senate has been a good thing in the past. And this is time for the reminder every podcast that they were warned that if they did the double solution, they'd have fewer in the Senate. I wonder if uh, with both Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd, it might have been fear that um, they would lose and wanting to hold on to the keys to the, the C1 com car just that little bit longer. And uh, certainly in Kevin Rudd's hindsight, he probably would have wanted to go super, super late just to get a few more months in the spotlight before having to leave it forever. Nevertheless, Dee, what would the line have been if the coalition had gone last year? Would it have just been, hey, it's Malcolm, not Tony. You like this guy, remember? Absolutely. And also back then it would have been not Tony but also not Shorten, who was certainly was on the nose and he has done an extraordinary job in the last six months. But before that, yeah, it was anyone but either of those two who mm. would have done very well. Andrew, as someone who writes a daily column about all this, what, do, you, what, do you recall your feelings when Malcolm Turnbull came in? Did you think he was going to do a better job than this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think I, I like pretty much everybody else on the, not just the country, but throughout the cosmos of space and time was just sort of relieved <laughs> that uh, that Tony was no longer there because I mean the, the thing the thing about about Abbott was not only was he sort of you know legislation wasn't getting passed that think we were in this kind of slow sleepwalk stasis kind of kind of situation but he was also just like internationally embarrassing I mean you, you remember particularly after the G20, the amount of international headlines that were that were going around about, you know, for example, him using valuable world leader time to bitch and moan about how he couldn't get stuff through the Senate, which was not particularly of interest to Vladimir Putin, I think it's fair to say, or or you know Barack Obama or Angela Merkel or anybody else. So the idea of like, okay, well, at the very very least, we've got somebody who's actually going to. Um, present their ideas. I mean, yeah, this was in his entire pitch was that he was, it was going to be a, a battle of ideas. We were going to have things explained to the electorate. 
And I, I think, A, that fell away real quick, and B, as we've sort of discovered, particularly with the, um, with the debate, uh, there's an argument to be made that people don't really want to be have complicated policy explained to them at great length about you know superannuation and stuff like that. They just want to get the takeaway of, am I better off? Yes, good, fine. I still can't believe Malcolm Turnbull went out after Justin Trudeau got plaudits for explaining quantum computing and went, I can do it better. I can explain better than, than, the, than the pretty man. Um, <laughs> it was extraordinary, wasn't it, the, the moment where the world discovered Tony Abbott. I mean, John Oliver on his new show invented a whole new segment which is called Other People's President of the United States just to make fun of Tony Abbott. It was an extraordinary uh, analysis of the man if you haven't seen the video. And, and Dee, I've got to say, part of me would just so love to know what the plan was for Tony Abbott's re-election campaign. It was, it was going to be something like, you know, if anyone brings in a carbon tax, we'll repeal it again. We'll stop boats you haven't even <laughs> thought of yet. I, I don't even know what he had to run on. He would have just done, we stopped the boats and under Labor they'll start again. I mean, he couldn't have done debt and deficit anymore because they've tripled it, so that would have been a really mm. tricky sell. So would, we're all boats, 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 and every second ad on TV would have been that ridiculous one, if something doesn't add up, call the government. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would have been typical, a real Crosby texter fear kind of campaign. Well, I've got to say, I've been feeling alert and alarmed for a very, very long time. <laughs> I've been travelling, so I haven't seen it, but the government did do the old, oh, look, we're going to have national security ads that just happen to be on air at about the time we're going to the polls. Has that been a bit of a squib again? Oh, oh, every every government in the year before an election, every single government all of a sudden finds a whole lot of things that they need to advertise, that it's in the public's best interest to know about amazing stuff they're doing. That is not unheard of, but the sort of the the, the bringing in the fear is is a little bit they've done it more this time than I can, than I can remember has been done before. I mean, this is this is precisely the the direction of the campaign, as as best I can see. Pretty much what I think an Abbott campaign would have looked like, which is if you vote in Labor, everything will explode. I mean, that 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 seems to be more or less the campaign slogan. That it, it's not so much, you know, for for all of of, of Turnbull's periodic, uh, never been a more exciting time, something something <laughs> agility, something innovation. Boom. Really, the, boom. as opposed to the ideas boom. The talk about the ideas boom seems seems <laughs> to have uh, seems to have dropped off as well, but it is really all of like you can't trust Labor with the economy, you can't trust Labor with boats, and then they go very quiet as best I can work out. That those seem to be not not just the main prongs, but the only prongs that they seem to have left on the increasingly function free fork. Well, they that did seem using. to want to run a positive campaign, though, didn't they? I mean, I, I gather the, the concept was to do all the uh, conveniently timed government advertising about the ideas boom and then Malcolm Turnbull would come out and use his charm and personality to spin as a, a bright new vision of the future where uh, everyone had a start-up in their back pockets and, you know, the internet uh, skipped and danced around us and delivered us bag, bags full of money. Uh, that pitch hasn't really played out. They've still got a month to go, D. If you were advising the, the coalition, what is the suit from here? Do they go negative? Do they try to... Uh, to paint Labor as untrustworthy or is there still a positive story to tell of the sort that they've tried to, to work into the budget, for instance? Every um, every gov- every election campaign, every government goes in saying we're going to do a positive campaign. I can tell you how few 
of them work out. There's the old saying, save your positive campaign for your tombstone. Bill <laughs> um, <laughs> Shorten started the first, uh, the but, first day of this election day. He had this bus with 100 positive policies or whatever it was on it. Was that madness? Yeah, although in fairness, in fairness to Bill, he's actually spent a year sort of releasing policies and there does seem to be a bit of a substance there. <laughs> You've always got to start positive and it's always a little bit of a chicken and um, chicken game to see who goes negative first. But eventually, you know, it sits usually in the 1950s it sat at about um, 30% negative. By nineteen mid-1990s, campaigns are about, in terms of ads, about 50% mm. negative. Now they sit at about 80% and in some cases higher than that. So they're, but they're always going to go negative. Where they'll go, I think, is they'll, um, I think people, despite being a very volatile electorate and we've thrown out first-term governments in Victoria and Queensland, I think people are really sick of change. Mm. And I think that they will tie Bill Shorten into the past, the, the volatility of the past. They'll tie him to the Rudd and Gillard years and to Abbott as well and remind people of all that so that it almost turns like, okay, well, he's stuffed a whole lot of things up, but, oh, my God, I can't bear any Stop more the change. carousel. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Bill Shorten certainly would have been eminently attackable on the basis of this is the Svengali behind two uh, leadership backstabbings were the blood not completely wiped off Malcolm Turnbull's own hands. But, I mean, <laughs> stability is a strong suit. It certainly worked well for for John Howard, when they had that um, Latham L plate campaign, that really seemed to resonate with people very effectively. So, Andrew, what what would you do if you a month to go? Are there any more uh, cards to play, or is it simply hoping that um, internal disunity and uh, superannuation gotchas don't completely derail the train? Well, I, I I think actually the the disunity issue is the big sort of Achilles heel with the whole we're going to offer stability question because at the moment the the level of hostility between sort of different elements of the Liberal Party is like not even implied. I mean, there's, there's been mainstream media stories explaining very, very clearly about how candidates are being starved of funding because they were seen to be... Uh, you know, supporting uh, Turnbull over Abbott in the, in the case of uh, a couple of New South Wales candidates or because they're declared to be sort of unpalatable to the, the state party in the case of Sophie Mirabella and Indi. And there's this sort of ongoing rolling stories. Like, the, despite, I feel, these, these attempts to kind of dredge up uh, that, you know, such and such a Labor candidate doesn't care for offshore detention or thinks that taking donations from mining companies is a bad thing. Though that message, I don't know that it's that it's hurting Labor who are coming across all, all and I, I hesitate to use this word, but almost faceless yeah. in their unity. Like there's there's a very they they seem to be a pretty shiny body who with with nothing's really. Yeah, let's it. get onto that in a sec. I mean, Labor, um, the, the sort of caucus discipline, which they're sometimes criticised for, does seem to be working quite well in in, in this case. I know, Andrew, you've um, been increasingly fascinated by Cor- Corey Bernardi's um, decision not to describe himself even as a liberal. Um, I think on his social media, but just as an Australian Conservative senator, uh, potentially leaving himself the the option of changing to the other party brand that he's. Registered. So, uh, if I recall, D though, under the two Tony Abbott campaigns masterminded by uh, Ian Lochnane, um, 
there was nothing like this. I seem to recall them them being far more uh, well managed. D is that right? They, they were for all your uh, for all the criticisms of Peter Credlin as um, chief of staff. If I was a Liberal Party, I'd be calling her up because she understood um, <laughs> the importance of sort of a simple unified message. But I suspect mm. that a lot of the instability in the Liberal Party isn't actually going through to the general public. We hear the things about candidates not getting funding, although to be honest, some of them are complete whingers because if you're running in a seat that you're not that you're not going to win, that isn't going to poll well. The party's not going to throw money Fair at point. You. you know, mm. there's a really limited fund and the and the parties limit them to the seats they can win. So it's, it's you know, it's pretty poor form, I think, for some. There was one candidate who resigned because she wasn't getting, you know, funding from mm. the Liberal Party. It's like, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, <laughs> don't run in a seat you can't win and then expect the party to throw yeah, money fair at enough. you. But I think a lot of that doesn't seep through to the public. But they do remember sort of still the Gillard-Rudd days and they do remember Shorten's role in that and I absolutely will almost guarantee that the final weeks of ads will show lots of that sort of stuff. Cloak and dagger, Bill Shorten, yeah. Look, it, it, it's, um, it is fascinating though, even this past week, the, the extent to which they, they aren't on the same page, things like the superannuation changes. Now, Malcolm Temple came up with a budget that seemed relatively successfully to straddle uh, the, the goals of the kind of fiscal rectitude and putting the budget back in order with some strategic funding for things. And a big part of that was these super changes. But now we're having Arthur Sinodinos coming out and saying that we might change it after the uh, the election, reminiscent of the, the, the famous Peter Garrett, oh, we'll just change it all if we get in. <laughs> it really seems as though they are not behind the plan. And, and the plan surely was worked out in, in advance, Andrew. They surely signed off on it to some degree, but they're not st- sticking with it. They're, they're clearly terrified. Basically, I think that's that's the answer. I, I, we've had no shortage of moments where clearly a policy has been announced because something's about to be leaked and it's, and it's caught a lot of MPs on the hop. But with something like this, something which is, a, uh, which is kind of one of their, their tentpole policies, you would think that you know, even if, if a lot of the MPs went across the complete detail, you think that the deputy would probably be able to to bang it out in a in a couple of pithy lines. And for Sinodinus to kind of you know, who, who is you know after all a you know, working very closely with the leadership on this, for him to kind of be seem to be gently walking it back is really really strange, and it's something that you can't. I mean that that baffles me. That absolutely baffles me. I would have thought of of everybody to be able to sell this and to sell this very clearly. It'd be he does baffle me in general. I have to say, apparently brilliant <laughs> during uh, his work with John Howard. He's very highly regarded, but all the stuff when he was the treasurer of the party is coming back to haunt them. And uh, mm. anyway, that's a, a conversation for another, for another time. So that that's the coalition um, hoping the wheels don't completely fall off. And that Malcolm Turnbull's popularity holds them through. And as Dee's said, people do have doubts about A, Labor, and B, the idea of yet another change of government. Now, let's go over to the Labor side of things. They've come up with substantive policies in a way that uh, might have surprised some. They've tried to, to bring conversation back to your heartland Labor issues, education and health, and so on. Dee, how do you score their campaign, bearing in mind you've got some sort of peripheral Involvement, but I don't think you've been in the room when they've been planning this, have you? No, no. Um, I, th- I think 
the, the prob- there's a couple of problems. One is Bill has done enormously well, and I know the polls are showing, you know, 50-50. 50-50 is pretty polls, impressive. The national <laughs> polls kind of mean nothing at this point because the only polls that matter are in the margins that matter, which are the swinging voters in the marginal seats. Very few people mm. change their votes between elections. Okay, Labor's got, I think, to win... I think it's 21 or 19 official seats, right? But then it also, it's got 11 of its own seats on less than 2% margins. So no no matter which way you do the numbers, I just don't know how it's doable. Um, I'd like to see more emotion in the campaign. I think that um, that that might help. And there does need to be sort sort of some negative ads, you know, on health and education and sort of some emotive stuff. Um, You know, obviously the negative ads will have to come out pretty soon because as positive as Bill has put himself up there, you still have to get people to vote against Turnbull. Swinging voters are more likely to vote against something. Um, Mm. So the negative ads have to come out and they have to be hard, Um, but they have to be emotive and it has to be in sort of Labor heartland stuff on health and education. I still don't know that I don't think it's doable by the numbers. I really, I can't see how it's doable, but, you know, stranger things have happened. That's a huge insight. I must say I haven't heard anyone saying this of Labor, even though the national polls have bits of promise they've been ahead two-party preferred, you reckon, bearing in mind the need to win voters in marginal seats, so that's really the only thing that determines elections, not really the national vote, um, you just think it's too high a mountain to climb. That That's very interesting. It's it's 19, 19 seats, and honestly, I think by the time you pull mm. in some of those, and some of those are redistributed and they're a little bit unclear in that, I think we need 26 seats to win and I don't think it's doable. No. Um, you well, know, unless something massive, massive happens, I, I, I just don't see how it's doable. Yeah, the, the only way that I've, I've been able to kind of e- even come up with a theoretical situation where Labor form government is based on quite a lot of independent seats and a sort of vague assumption that most of those independent seats we, are more likely to, to form government with Labor rather than agree to be ignored by the coalition. I mean, the coalition have not exactly demonstrated much of an ability to work collaboratively, shall we say. And um, whereas Labor, you know, obviously Gillard, they've, they've got a good track record of running a minority government. They've been very consultative in the Senate, in you know, despite the the current tiffs that they're having with uh, with Xenophon and with the Greens, who are likely to be the, uh, the, the more powerful voices in there, at least in, the, in uh, having influence over the crossbench. I, yeah, I, I, I wonder how they can do it at, you know, even, even, even in theory at this point. That's very interesting. Okay. I must say I've been looking at Queensland and, and Victoria and sort of saying, no, no, we've cheapened the role of political office to the point where leaders are disposable and um, we will turn after one election if uh, the mood of the electorate is that way. I'm just thinking about this whole question of negative ads there's been a lot of criticism of Malcolm Turnbull for having a blurry image for being caught between uh, his more progressive supporters and his uh, his conservative backbench and the, the difficulty of knowing exactly who he is and what he stands for, this whole question of the real Malcolm. That said, in terms of trying to find something to latch on to in terms of how to attack him, it's actually pretty difficult. I mean, he hasn't done enough to actually be able to say Look where he let you down. Look, look where he has a track record of disappointing you. And whereas Tony Abbott came out of the gate and and did this, that, and the other, and went back on promise X, Y, and Z, Malcolm Turnbull's indistinctness might actually be 
an asset in that <laughs> it's still really a question of potential. The argument is, no, no, look, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to be a good Prime Minister rather than I have been a good Prime Minister so far. And perhaps that's a compelling enough uh, argument. I think that's pretty spot on. I think it's they're disappointed that he hasn't done things and that's a much harder case to make against than being disappointed in the things he has done. Mm. Well, I, I think that there's, there's possibly some some space in kind of, you know, Abbott said he'd do this and then did this. Morrison said he'd do this and then did this. You know, GST came up, uh, state tax came up, you know, uh, Turnbull was supportive of, of marriage equality and, you know, has locked himself into a plebiscite, that sort of thing, and kind of selling a narrative that this is, this is the party that changes its mind. But, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's very it's, – it's also kind of difficult to say the, – the problem with Malcolm is that he would do things that we support and he hasn't, so you shouldn't vote for him because things we support. It just it, – it, it, it requires a little bit of – I think intellectual gymnastics that are kind of difficult to get across in a 15 second ad. The same sex marriage plebiscite is a very interesting one to, to talk about, actually, Dave. We might get your thoughts on that because the, um, the thing is, even though Malcolm Turnbull has stuck with the Abbott policy, we know he didn't like that policy. We know that he's doing it um, to, to appease probably people within his own party. Maybe there's uh, polls that say that people in these marginal seats uh, care about that. But nevertheless, if you're voting on that issue, you still get a sense that it's something he supports and would want to find a way to do. So maybe this is just, I'm shocking myself a bit here, maybe um, it isn't a problem that we know his intentions uh, even if he's got a compromise and so on. It's it's an unusual situation for a Prime Minister to be in (laughs) after nine months, Dee. Yes, I kind of, and I think there's something that as well. Underneath, we, we, everyone... I mean, as you said before, we were all surprised at how badly he's done because even Labor voters like me thought he would do a better job. And there's a bit of us that thinks, oh, well, once the right sort of lose their power on him, maybe he will. But he had his chance back when he was polling high, even though the right put him into power. Back then he kind of could have done anything. If you're polling well as the leader and you're the prime minister, you can call the shots, but he didn't. They weren't about to dump him again, were they? They were like, you know... A month exactly, later. exactly. That's his opportunity. And now now he's lost it. Now he relies on them for the numbers to stay in the job. So he's put himself in a trickier position and he's blown so much political capital that even you know when he probably wins next time, it'll be with such a reduced um, majority and with such, such a reduced amount of political capital that he's lost that ability to stand up to people in the party. So we're not going to see the Malcolm that was always possible to see. The prince who was promised. Yes, look, okay, so we've drifted a little bit away from looking at Labor's campaign, which I wanted to do. So they've gone back to boilerplate heartland values for a, a bit, D, but in terms of trying to win over those voters in marginal seats, people who they need, What's the pitch there? What are they hoping will happen? What's their best case scenario? Um, it, it's it's always with those things you're hoping for good local candidates and good local issues. What you always want is to be able to sort of take the sort of the national narrative, if you like, and and make it relevant for those people. Things that really do matter in those marginal seats is Medicare. You know, is having to pay to go to the doctor that will matter, and also things um, like you know giving. Um, I think it's $7.4 billion tax cuts to the banks when you are pulling money out of health and education because it's not Mm. just about pulling money out of health and education. It goes, I guess, to priorities. 
Um, and I know that the, the rights always go, well, Labor's always starting a class war, and it's like, well, there kind of is one a little, <laughs> a little bit when, <laughs> when there are when there are decisions made to do, you know, big business tax cuts and take money out of school. That's kind of a class war a little Surely bit. Surely it's more that when John Howard was Prime Minister, that he managed to temporarily cease the class war by uh, bringing a whole bunch of factions over to his side where they weren't usually. We have a class-based political system. You, you can't deny that if you're going to have a Labor Party and a pro-business party. How, how is that not essentially a class divide? Well, it, well, it, is. I mean, it worked for John Howard because he essentially gave used um, resources money that should have gone into probably savings to give a whole lot of people money who didn't particularly need it and now want to keep it. So it makes it, it, makes it very, very hard then to take those things away as well. Okay, so Labor potentially not going to fall over the line this time. No. I don't think so. They'll certainly on, on all numbers narrow the margins by the looks of things. What then happens after that? Does Bill Shorten stay on and get the thanks of a grateful party for bringing them back into contention or will he not have done enough? What do you, what do you think, Andrew? Look, I'm going to be really interested to see what happens because, of course, you know, by convention the leader steps down after a, an election loss. Or, so By the yeah. new Rudd uh, rules, I think, yeah. Mm, so I, I guess the question will be when when he steps down, whether he's re-elected by a grateful party with nobody running against him or whether, you know, Albo will, will take his moment or, or some other candidate, so Chris Bowen maybe or somebody like that. But um, I, I think... Particularly if, I mean, g- given that one of the things that's that's probably going to get turned below the line is that question of stability, I think it would be really smart for Labor to show some stability and to kind of Beasley it and have him uh, sort of keep a keep a leader across a, an election campaign. Because Bob Cart. Well, yeah, and and that way, you know, at, at the next election, probably after uh, Turnbull has not done a terrific job of getting things through an an even more difficult Senate when he's been sort of fighting a, uh, fighting his own party who, you know, a lot of the people who supported Turnbull's challenge were the, were the, the people in marginal seats who could see their jobs going under Abbott, who are probably going to lose their seats to a large extent. Anyway, he's going to have less of that support within the party. He's going to have, you know Abbott and sort of the the rest of the uh, the Delcons as they're called, so, uh, sort of whispering about well you know 2013 look at the look at the margin we had 2016 no no not not and um, is that how the Delcons talk is Mary Devine revealed that to you that's specifically how how um how Kevin Andrews talks because he he uses high pitched frequencies to hunt insects at night the thing. You know, I, I think for for Shorten will be if he comes in as again he's a, he'll be a known quantity at the next election. If if he has run a pretty policy based uh, campaign now, and and if Labor can kind of maintain that level, you know, the current level of discipline and the and the the current level of of sort of for want of a better word, positivity. You know, I, I reckon it would make the next election kind of a lock. Whereas I think if they sort of the, the amount of momentum they would lose by changing leaders after the election would be would 
I think really do them damage, and also I think kind of give a a really free kick to the uh, to the incoming government. I'm keen to know, D. Um, to what extent is the ch- is the challenge of winning a campaign about selling a leader as opposed to selling a set of ideas? Clearly, in this campaign, Malcolm Turnbull is well known to the electorate. Probably almost everybody has a, a, a view on him. Dan Illich managed to find people in Tasmania who didn't know who he was, but that's probably a very small number. Whereas, you know, if they dumped Bill Shorten, let's say they went to Chris Bowen, I think despite his attempt to uh, to, to do the whole goatee experiment, he's still barely known in the electorate. And yet Kevin Rudd came in as a bit of a new broom and won the election. What kind of leader well, do you want to sell? I mean, but he was a national figure. How do the, does the personality of the leader play into the pitch, D? Um, look, it wouldn't actually matter because you'd have three years to sell them anyway. In um, in Queensland, I think at the beginning of the election, half the people had, didn't even know who Anastasia Palaszczuk was. Certainly couldn't spell and her name. And we got her as preferred premier by the end. Mark Kenny wrote a good piece um, today, I think it was today or yesterday, about the fact that Bill Shorten has been fighting two campaigns and one of them being the election campaign and the other is the campaign to ensure that he stays on after the election, and I, I'd have to say that I think he deserves to, and I'm not sure I would have said that six months ago. Mm. Um, I, the good thing, if he stays on, is all the things that have been th- will, that will get thrown at him in the last three weeks. They won't hold that same currency in three years' time because everyone will have heard them before. It's one of the reasons Abbott got elected. Everyone was like, "He's not going to get elected because he's done this. He's done this. He's done this. He said this." Everyone knew it. It had been out there in the public for so long that it didn't have the power that the insiders thought it would. And it's the same thing. The other thing you have to remember with the Labor Party is um, elbows from the left, you know, and shortens from the right. And the right generally have the numbers. So the leader generally comes from the right. Yeah. You know, which which means that Albo, you know, is unlikely to be. I can't see Bowen being it. I, I think it will be shortened again. And I, I think he deserves Tony it. Tony Plutusek, same issue being from, from the left. And you had that bizarre situation of the, going to the members, uh, getting them to vote, and then the numbers mm. still trumping them because uh, Bill Shorten being a creature of the right. All right, so Bill Shorten potentially stays on. We keep having this contest. He's the first Labor leader to do a full three-year term, uh, I think, since Beasley, if I've got my mm. stats right, and even Beasley got, got dumped. Let's briefly talk about other um, campaigns and how they're travelling. Richard Di Natale, new Greens leader, bit of a different pitch from, from the Bob Brown, Christine Milne continuum. Andrew, how do you think they're... Going. Are they going to do well in the Senate? Um, I don't think they're going to wildly increase the the amount of senators they've got. I, I, I again, I sort of every time I look at the numbers, I, I just can't see the kind of percentages that you'd need. I mean, you know, even with a double dissolution, I think I think it's likely to be probably ten or eleven, maybe. But um, it's I. I th- Again, I th- I think at this point with the Greens, it's kind of a long game. Like they're they're trying to convince people uh, that that they're a, a moderate, centrist, sensible party. But you know, I mean, for the first time, they've got a leader who's who's not an environmental warrior. This is a big difference. Trying to move into the Democrats' ground yeah, rather huge. than the the uh, the true believers. How do you view their campaign? Do you, is, is that shift working? It's, it's very tricky. One of the things that made the Greens both a strong brand but also a party that was never going to be a major party was the fact that they were sort of so concentrated on the environment. And yeah, when exactly. you spread out from that, you it, you know, it's, it's your only way to grow bigger but it's also dangerous as mm. well. I think they will lose in South Australia. Um, 
because uh, I think um, Xenophon's going to pick up three spots there. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll get on to him. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, Queensland, they never, you know, I think they'll be, they'll get their one maybe. I actually don't, but they'll probably um, pick up Feeney's seat in Melbourne. They'll probably get Batman. Yeah. Um, and possibly Wills in Melbourne as well. So look, there's a couple of seats. Uh, Fremantle as well. They may pick up. I think just because it's been such a schmozzle over there, it'll be a um, what's his name, the um, ice skater dude, where everyone else fell over. <laughs> yeah. Bradbury, Steve Bradbury. That's it. <laughs> they may do that. <laughs> My favourite interview in four years of radio, I think, uh, with, with all due respect to both of you, Stephen Bradbury, an absolute champion of a man. I love him. But um, <laughs> he should run for office. He would definitely win regardless. Um, all right, so so the Greens are a little bit between uh, the centre and, and, and the far left. The Nick Xenophon team, uh, as we've said, he, he got nearly two quotas last time out in South Australia, but for preferencing he would uh, have had two senators uh, D, you say he'll get three, which makes sense on the numbers. What about in in other states, though? D, is the is the Xenophon brand ready to go national, or is he, is he going to largely be a South Australian creature? Do you know what it could? I even thought last election, and even in two thousand and ten, if there you know there is room for a party, a third party who's not a whack job party and who's not the Greens. Remember, like the old Democrats. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there is room for that, I think, um, in Australian politics, particularly for the Senate. I'm sure he thinks so. Um, so, so he, look, he may do well. I just always distrust parties that are named after the leader. There's just something so narcissistic yeah. about that it kind of just grates But it's on. a team. Yeah. And, the, the, and, and the, the history of, of, of parties named after somebody has not been a glorious one, and particularly in very recent times it has not been a glorious one. And I think, like, one of the, the things that I think is, is a big threat to to Xenophon isn't so much uh, himself as whether or not he's got other people on sort of in the Senate with him who are going to stay there. I mean, you, it, it's not difficult to imagine sort of ambitious, slightly, you know, a- ambitious people who are not able to work great with other people inside of a party environment like who, are, who aren't going to join the coalition, who aren't going to join Labor, who aren't going to join the Greens, sort of seeing an opportunity with somebody like Xenophon to get in there and then sort of do a Jackie Lambie or, or a, a, a Madigan or a... Uh, Glenn Lazarus. Lazarus has a team. Jackie Lambie has a network. Um, yeah, look, it's, 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 it is weird, isn't it, when they, when they do that. Bob Catter uh, has, at least he called it Catter's Australian... Party, so potentially staying state-based, even despite the the lower quota. And I guess the thing is as well, beyond Nick Xenophon, what do they stand for? This is the thing. It's like the anti-pokies. Mm. There's all we all we kind of know. David Lineholm, bizarrely, this is this is something I've never told anyone. Actually, asked me if I'd be interested in standing for the Senate for his party. About um, there you go. I kid you not. And I can tell you, it was uh, it was just not long after my son before. So about ten. What was that? My second son. I was like about seven years ago, maybe. So go and look my at my goodness. website and give me a call. And I looked at his website and didn't call him. <laughs> what might have been, D, you could have had the, the D Madigan team network party. Yeah, I'm not so into guns, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like, like, like that's a real deal breaker. It, it would be kind of. You know, un- unless you're armed to the teeth, I'm not sure that that, that Landhelm's going to take you seriously. No, and- hey, no one's taking his seat, by the way. 
But he, he was very keen on it. And then I looked at his environmental policies and his guns. It's like, God, you just like to kill stuff, it's don't very, you? That's very flattering. It doesn't matter whether it's But he's a people. libertarian, so he could have done whatever you wanted to. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, <laughs> I, I hope he sticks around, actually. It's one of the very few senators who actually sticks to literally his guns on, on various issues. Um, all right, so anyone else we think could be contenders finally? Any other people whose pitch might resonate? Pauline Hanson as our very own uh, red-headed Donald Trump may or may not get in the picture. Is there anyone else worth getting excited about, D? in your view? No, I, look, I would just, I, I again would plug Ricky Muir on this. And I remember his first interview just thinking, oh, my God, this guy's a... But having... I've seen him speak a couple of times on a couple of things and been pretty impressed with him. He just seems to have a common sense. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to see him get in. I'd love to see Tony Windsor, of course, in the lower mm. house speak Barnaby. Oh, I think Glenn Lazarus is, is back potentially, yep. um, given his personal popularity in Queensland. Former rugby league star is probably all you need to know uh, about him. I must admit, with, with, with regards to Ricky Muir, I, I, there was a joke on... Um, on Mad as Hell last night, which I I, I reckon I, I missed about the next three minutes because I was laughing so hard when they were going through the the logos of the various parties, and I identified uh, the uh, the Ricky Muir's as being the Jim's mowing party, which I could not get over how good that was. And he's I done a great video to go with it though about how to vote in the Senate, and he's got his little face with his little beard and stuff on it. The man's learned a lot in, in three years, and look, haven't we all? Haven't we all? All right, D. Well, uh, it was great to get some uh, some insights from from within the the bunker, and in particular, your your view that uh, this is too hard for Labor. Yep, I think it is. I'll probably get in trouble for that, but, hey, what do you do? <laughs> hey, you call it like you see it. Thank Daddy. you for joining us. <laughs> call do. it like you see it. So you could have worked with David Lionhelm. That would have worked for him. <laughs> and, Andrew, uh, speak to you extremely soon. You will. Enjoy, enjoy the rest of the world. On our um, in the meantime, follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe in iTunes. And uh, if this isn't enough, there are at least 6,000 other Australian election podcasts to go and check out. Uh, enjoy. <laughs> 